Let's take Halloween. That's coming up soon, October there. Some people participate in Halloween. And as a cultural, not a religious thing, it's just fun to put on a mask and go to your neighbor's house and knock on their door and plead for candy. Um, others participate sort of halfway, limiting the types of activities or events or the kinds of costumes and things like that and trying to keep it under some kind of Christian control. Others have deep conviction that Halloween has too many pagan and occultic connections and should be avoided altogether. And you can have strong convictions on all three of those ways to view Halloween. I do, would not regard any of those views as strong or weak as regarding faith. They're just differences of opinion. What Paul is talking about has to do with religious observance based on a Christian's previous religious background. In other words, if a Christian comes from a lifestyle built around clean and unclean foods or certain days being special and as opposed to other days, he might carry those practices over into his Christian life. And I think Paul probably has in mind primarily a Jewish background. Look at verse 2. He says, One man has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. And if you study this issue through Scripture, the issue basically was, as we explained last time, meat was sold in the open market in a big city like Rome. And sometimes that meat passed through a temple before it got to the market. It was sacrificed, and then the basic meat from the sacrifice to a pagan deity was just put into the marketplace and sold on the street. So you didn't know if the meat you bought may have been offered to an idol or not. Now, a strong Christian in Paul's mind says, well, an idol isn't anything anyway. I'm not offering it to an idol. So if I buy meat in the marketplace and have no idea where it's been, it's not a big deal. I can eat it. A person who is weak from Paul's point of view is obsessed with not being defiled externally by a certain kind of food that's been offered to an idol. And even though it, it's sort of a, a, even an unknown quantity, that person is going to eat only vegetables because they don't ever want to be near meat that was ever in a pagan temple. And he's saying that person has a, a weak point of view. Verse 5, one man regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. He says, let each man be convinced in his own mind. Maybe talking about Sabbath keeping on the Saturday Sabbath, which Christ fulfilled. He is our Sabbath. But if that was what you did all your life, you might still want to hold the Sabbath as a special sort of day, a special day to honor the Lord, as opposed to every day being the day to honor the Lord. Difference of opinion. So if a Christian comes from a lifestyle built around these things, they might just have very tender conscience, conscience when it comes to giving those things up or, or just letting them go. They, they're clinging to them. They're holding on to them. So the truth is a Christian has no obligation to favor certain days over others or to regard one kind of food as clean and another kind as unclean. That's done. The coming of Christ brought an end to the need of all that stuff because he himself is our Sabbath rest. He himself is our sanctification, our cleanliness. We don't have to do all that ritual stuff anymore. Paul uses the word strong to describe the Christian who can live in the fullness of his liberty in Christ, who understands that justification by faith in Christ and an abiding relationship with him matters more than outward observances, and those things are simply not important. But the weakened faith, as Paul calls him, hasn't made it to that point yet. He's still holding on to some things. He loves Christ. 
He follows Him. He serves Him. But He sees that service connected to other external, even ritualistic sort of observances. And that's okay. Sabbaths, holy days, a rejection of all meat rather than risking defilement. He does not fully grasp His liberty in Christ yet. Now, as far as who's right... Paul would agree with the strong as a matter of principle. But you know what? It's not about who's right on these kind of issues. It's not about who has the better theological position. It's a matter of how we treat each other. That's where he's focusing. And it's a matter of what every Christian should do regarding his own conscience. So the direction Paul is taking us regards conscience your own inner moral compass, your own sense of what is and is not acceptable. And when we talk about gray areas, we are talking about conscience, not fastidious externals, but genuine convictions in terms of what it means to be, as Jesus put it, in the world, but not what? Of the world, right? People approach that in somewhat different ways. We have some very clear commands regarding the world of sin that surrounds us in Scripture. 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's a very strong statement to which every Christian owes serious consideration in a, in a path of life that's going to follow that. Do not love the world. James 4.4 do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? There's a big break there, right? Friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That is strong language. There's no walking together there. So each of us, you and I, must wrestle with what that means in our daily lives to not love the world, to not be at friends with the world. And the world in 1 John chapter 2 is defined as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. That's worldliness. So what we do, what we don't do. How we raise our children. What we talk about. What we participate in. And you know what? It's not always super clear in the Bible on all of the ways that filters out into life. There are some difficult issues that require prayerful and scriptural thought. And any of us that comes to a situation prayerfully and biblically also brings with us backgrounds that differ and experiences of life that differ. So we are going to come to some different conclusions about some things. You notice right away in Romans 14 that both the strong and the weak are purposing in their hearts to serve Christ with the choices they have made. Look at verse 5. One man regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Let each man be fully convinced. Does fully convinced suggest to you careful thought and consideration or just a casual approach? I would think some deep thoughts gone into it. Verse 6. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. And he who eats does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat. And give, gives thanks to God. See, the strong aren't strong because they are lax. 
they're not, they're not exercising their liberty because they just want to do whatever they want because they're not at all hung up on this obedience thing. That's not what he's talking about. They are strong on matters of food and on matters of days because they have thought through their theology and they know that the liberty in Christ is genuine and covers all of these areas and they're just as passionate against sin but it's just in these areas they know that they have liberty. They want to have God's mind on things, anything. That's where they're going. So it's not a forsaking of obedience to God or intense desire to obey the laws of God or to love as God commands us to love. In 14, 5, and 6, these men are both, the weak and the strong, they're both acting for the Lord. So God is a major consideration in the decisions that they're making. The strong one who can eat freely foods and that he once were regarded as unclean, he's not being a slacker. He's not eating what he wants without regard to Christ. He's thought it through. He who eats does so for the Lord and gives thanks to God. That's his approach. So our involvement with anything, where we go, our conversations, our playtime, what TV shows we watch, what we read, our computer time, must all be done to the Lord with thanksgiving, you see, with Him in mind, in every detail of our lives. If we aren't considering it from God's point of view, then we're not strong. We're slackers, you know. Some folks identify themselves as strong because they can just do whatever they want. That's not the biblical definition. They're not doing it to the Lord, they're just doing it. That's not strong. The strong one has fully thought it through and he's doing what he's doing unto the Lord. Because there's nothing you should do that's not unto the Lord or would be pleasing to him. So Paul's talking about people who are living for the Lord. So the issue is not laxity, it is lordship. Liberty in Christ does not diminish his lordship over every part of your life. In fact, it strengthens it. When I wrote a book on the entertainment thing, the subtitle was Restoring the Lordship of Christ to Our Entertainment Choices. And I chose that very carefully. I wrote it not so everyone would do exactly what I want them to do, but so that every Christian would realize his obligation to place entertainment under the lordship of Christ, like everything else. For some reason, in the last 20 years, Christians just stopped doing that. So I'm just saying, do that. Bring it all under the Lordship of Christ. And then you make your decisions there. But to do it without considering Him, that's the, that's the problem. Are we bringing biblical principles to bear as we make our choices? Most Christians aren't. They just follow the world, follow the crowd, and the impulses of the flesh, and that's wrong. Advertisers shouldn't decide what we do. Christ should decide what we do, right? To not be a friend of the world is to think it through biblically and then come to your own conclusion, to be fully convinced in your own mind about whatever. And of course, that's just, that is what we want on all different kinds of issues. If a person just does Halloween without a thought, for example, he's not being strong, he's being a bad disciple because he hasn't even thought about it. But if he gives Halloween careful consideration and decides to participate at some level, his conscience has to be respected by 
those that would refrain altogether, you see? And I don't think that's strong or weak in comparison to the other person on an issue like that. Both are doing right if both are focused on honoring Jesus as Lord in the choice that they make. They have simply come to different conclusions. Now notice what a great emphasis Paul places on Christ's Lordship in Romans 14. It's, it's just essential that you understand that when we talk about gray areas in the Christian life, we're only talking about people who are devoted to the Lordship of Christ in their lives. If He's not Lord, you don't even go there. You have no right to talk gray areas because that's what's first. The careless are actually excluded from the conversation here because both these people Paul's talking about are doing it for the Lord with thanksgiving. God is their focus. If you're not there, you're not ready for gray. You better stay in the black and white zone. Verse 7. Not one of us lives for himself and not one dies for himself. Us being Christians. Verse 8. For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Are you dead or living? Then he is your Lord. <laughs> this is what Christianity is. It's living and dying for the Lord. That's what it is. Verse 9 gives us a purpose clause. The reason Christ came and died and rose again, not so we could go along ignoring his will, but that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. So his honor and glory are what our lives are all about. Now, when it comes to wrong attitudes, criticizing each other for coming to different conclusions, we need to remember just who the Lord is. Verse 10. But you, why do you judge your brother? Talking to the weak. Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? Talking to the strong. For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us shall give an account of himself to God. The principal point here is very similar to verse 4. Don't stand in the place of God. It's not your place to question another person's devotion or spirituality based on your opinion. It's just not your place. And that can be hard. It really is hard, especially when you are passionate about your opinions and convictions. It's not too far for a leap sometimes to just step into the place and say, I think I'll be the Holy Spirit today because he's not doing his job well enough. It's, I mean, that's just what we're tempted to do. Try to be somebody else's conscience, you know? Start singing that Jiminy Cricket song and decide you're going to be somebody else's conscience. Get your little hat and umbrella and off you go. Don't let that happen. Be passionate about your convictions. Be persuasive. In love, share your convictions, but you let God judge. That's really the key. Don't assume that because somebody disagrees that their faith is inferior. And those who reject another's passionate conviction, don't look down on them because you've got, in your mind, liberty that they don't have. Don't look down on them as all oh, those poor restricted people. 
appreciate their love for the Lord and their desire to honor Him in the choices that they make. Sometimes Christians like to mock believers who choose a more structured or more limited lifestyle. Don't do that. The only problem is if they have an attitude that everybody has to be just like them. But in terms of their own decision for themselves, don't mock that. Celebrate it because they're following their conscience and we have to give great place to the other person's conscience. It's our obligation to do that. Another modern example here might be the issue of schools. I'm very pleased at the level of acceptance here at our church for parents who make school choices that are different from other people's choices, you know, from your own choice. It's not such a friendly issue in some churches around the country. And the reason is the passion that is aroused among people over this issue of education. It is a passionate issue. What do we do with our children? And that's and it's something to be concerned about. How can you let your children dot, 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 one way or the other? And I'm passionate about it too, but not enough to be God on the issue. See? Some people will not go to a church that does not teach that homeschooling is the only choice a Christian should make. They won't. And I've had people check out our church, and we have a very good homeschooling program here, lots of people involved in that. They say, but you don't teach that everybody should be homeschooling? No, we don't teach that. Where's that in the Bible? See? Well, it's right there. It says everybody should raise their child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Does that say what school your kid should go to? No, it doesn't. So they don't come here. And that's fine, and I respect that. But that's the kind of difficulty you can get to when you start teaching opinions as God's truth, when you start being God on your opinions. So we get scratched off people's list for that, and that's okay. We had a family leave the church one time because one of the leaders sent their child, his child, to a school that they didn't approve of. So they left the church. How could he? What kind of an example is that? If he was really spiritual, dot, dot, dot. See? That's the attitude Paul is talking about, and it's wrong. That's a wrong attitude. Oddly enough, the family that left, and they're good people, godly people, they send their children to the public school. And there's other people I know who would think, oh, how could they send their children to the public school? What a compromise. See? We can all play that game with each other. Any church that goes down the path of imposing on an individual's conscience on matters that are not explicitly biblical is just a church headed for trouble. And you'll be a Christian headed for trouble if you do the same thing. We can't live in the place of God. We have to resist feeling superior. Why? For we shall all appear before the judgment seat of God. That scares me sometimes. Enough to not be God myself. <laughs> Maybe we have a few weaknesses too. Maybe, right? Possible. So when we're busy measuring our brothers and sisters, God is measuring us. And he might reveal some shortcomings. So we should be focused on our conscience and being right before him on that great day. He is the only judge. So while we can gently and in love encourage people to consider our understanding of holiness, and I think that's a good thing, we need to leave it between them and God because he is the only judge. 
And there will be a day when each of us will stand before the Lord to give an account. You know, it's interesting, that word judgment seat that appears in verse 12 there, I mean, not, um, verse 10, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. That is not a place of condemnation. I don't know if you're all familiar with this. There are two kinds of judgment in the Bible. There's the judgment of the wicked, the great white throne judgment it's called in the book of Revelation. But for Christians, there was a judgment called the, the Bema. Bema is a, a Greek word that described, like if you went to the Olympic Games and they put you on those little stands and they hang a medal around your neck, the, the Bema is where the judges sit and judge the games and then that's where they give you the award. You'd go up there and they'd put a laurel wreath on your head or something like that. That's the Bema. It's not a place of condemnation. It's a place of reward. Christians will not be condemned. How do you know that? Good girl. Very good. Yeah. There is therefore now what? Romans 8.1? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you believe Romans 8.1... You're not worried about being condemned at the judgment seat of Christ if you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, you will not be condemned, but you will be examined by your Lord. There will be revelations. There will be discussion. And in some sense, consequences. We have more detail, actually, about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You might just want to turn over a couple pages to that chapter. Paul is comparing in 1 Corinthians 3 a Christian life he's comparing a Christian life with the building of like a temple for the Lord so our choices and our behavior and our attitudes are all factored into this building that we're putting up with our lives and by way of analogy our service can be pictured as a type of building materials that's what he chooses to do if we use precious and enduring materials our building will stand the test of scrutiny but if we use cheap junk, the slightest flame of inquiry will burn our works up. Look at verse 10. According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another was building upon it. But let each man be careful how he builds upon it. For no man can lay a foundation other than that one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built upon it remains, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire. In other words, it's like you're building this building, and some of us who have rotten attitudes and, and uh, stinky, um, hypocritical behaviors are building with hay. Sort of like the three little pigs, you know? One guy builds with hay and straw, and the other guy builds with brick. Somebody's building with, with junky stuff, with maybe one or two diamonds thrown in there. Another person's building with bricks, granite, stones, precious metals, all these kinds of things. And you, and you light a match, and you put it to each one. Well, what happens to the hay life? <clears throat> There's like two diamonds right there, too. And the other guy's got this edifice, you know. And there's rewards based on how it comes out. There are actually different, not different levels of heaven, but there's different levels of reward, honors, places of authority, things to do. 
he shall himself be saved, yet so as through fire. So there are indeed levels of reward in heaven. Faithfulness to Christ, investing oneself in his work, love, many things will be examined and factored in and their worth revealed. Part of that judgment will be how we dealt with those who are different from us. Whether we accepted them or harshly judged them. It matters how we relate to one another. And it will matter on the judgment day. Imagine, if you will, the Christian who has spent much of his earthly life criticizing and judging others, thinking he's holy and more dedicated than those other guys. His lack of love is turning all of his labors into sawdust. And he will have an accounting, as will you and as will I. So many church-going folks assume they're never going to hear a word about their failures. I don't think so. Each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Those are the Bible's words. I don't like to think about Jesus shaking his head when I walk up before him. That, what a horrible thing that will be if that's the case. Looking at our works. And he says to you, can you explain this to me? What are we going to say? Especially in violating our duty to love the brethren. What are we going to say? You and I just don't have what it takes to be God. You know? We just don't. So we're going to have to let him be God and we're going to have to regard one another as fellow servants, accountable not to each other, but to him. Right? Back in Romans 12, we were given clear instructions on our obligations to love one another. Romans 12, 8... Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. In chapter 13, verse 8, we have more about love. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Then what? For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. What does that mean? How would you wish to be regarded by your fellow believers when you have convictions? With contempt? Would you like your motives to be questioned? Would you like people to assume that you're a bad Christian rather than discuss it with you or hear you out or see what your point of view would be? Would you like to be judged unfairly? Of course not. None of us would, right? So then, rather than be God, let's determine to love each other and treat each other just as we would want to be treated. I want people to assume the best about me and just start from there even if I'm wrong. I want to have my opinions respected as honestly held opinions. And if I'm off track, I want to know that, but I want to be dealt with kindly in being told that. That's how Christians minister together, grow together, serve together. And it's a challenge. It's a challenge. Now, I hope we have understood clearly what Paul means by the strong and the weak. The weak are not morally weak. They're not unbelieving. They're simply tied to externals that they regard as important. 
the temptation of the weak, the temptation for them is to criticize those who have more liberty than they do. The strong understand their liberty in Christ, not at the expense of Christ's lordship, but in honor of his lordship. The temptation for the strong is to feel superior to the weak and to look down their noses at them. Gray areas, we've said, are not explicitly spelled out in Scripture. Some of them don't really involve issues of weak or strong, but just different opinions about what is the best way to be in the world, but not of it. Right? We've said that our duty is to accept one another in love. But we didn't quite get to the next principle, uh, a principle of love and action, a principle that is not really well understood anymore, and that is letting liberty go actually giving up liberty for the sake of another Christian. That's how important a brother's conscience is, that we need to be willing to forsake our own freedom for another person's conscience. And Paul's language becomes very honest and very straightforward on our need to be able to do this, to, to let some liberty go so we don't destroy other people. That's the principle. And we'll have to do it next week. So come back. We'll talk about it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the powerful truths of the scriptures, Lord. I pray that each one of us would be living our life for the Lord with thanksgiving, seeking to please you above all things. And if we differ, to do so with graciousness and understanding and mercy as those who will give an account of ourselves not an account for other people. We thank you for the truth that was revealed to us. Help us to remember this and to live it because we're going to deal with it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.